my wife is out there somewhere and Sam is out there somewhere. Got to keep him on a leash. <laughs> you could probably talk to my wife. Both of them, yeah. And keep them in line. We'll get there someday. That's all right. All right, let's go ahead and pray, and then we will jump back into Mark 10. It's been a while since we've been going through verse by verse, so we'll get there today. God, thank you once again for your word, that your word is reliable, that it is trustworthy, that you have given it to us and preserved it for us. God, we would be lost without you. Uh, the flower fades, the grass withers, but God, your word lasts forever. We're thankful that it can uh, be that, that study guide for us, that you yourself are our rock, that you are our fortress. God, we are uh, so thankful for who you are and who we are in relation to you. Help us to remember that we are weak and you are strong, that you are you are mighty, that you are the one who guides us and uh, holds us firm. God, we're, we're thankful for that. God, bring to memory the things that we've studied before in previous months and previous chapters and help us make connections that perhaps we haven't before and to understand your word correctly, that it would be uh, clear to us and that we would be drawn closer to you through it. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well... Last week, we did our Jeopardy review. Are there any questions you guys have from any of that? That's a lot of information we went over uh, rather quickly. And we ended abruptly without having much time for any other thoughts or questions. Any, anything from last week that was not cleared up? All right, well... We did have four questions left over, so I thought we could go through those questions as part of our review today, um, just looking at those leftover questions from last week. So, first question was from ethnicities for 300, if you care. That's the category, ethnicities. So, um, that one was, <clears throat> who responded to Jesus by saying, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And Jerry, I believe, caught on this passage. Anybody remember? You don't have to buzz in this week. Abby has the answer. Oh. Uh, it was in Mark, I think it's in Mark chapter 3. Is that right, Jerry? Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Or am I wrong? I am wrong. It's 6, 1 through 6. <clears throat> so, Jesus went out from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When Sabbath came, he came to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And so it was those in his hometown, right? People that were most familiar with him back in Nazareth. And he said, A prophet is not without honor, except for in his hometown. So his own people were just saying, let's just 
so-and-so's kid, right? We know his brothers, we know his sister, nobody, nobody special. That's just Jesus. All right. Um, the next one that we missed, what's that? <laughs> that was not all right. You're, you're quite right. That was wrong of them to do. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Next question. Theology for 300. We're just wrapping up the last few questions we didn't get. Uh, what's the theological significance of Jesus' words, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? Yeah. Yeah, the. Yep. And so he he moved on. Good. Yeah, the promise of the Messiah was first made to the the Jewish race, right? First made to to Abraham and to his descendants. Um, Romans one sixteen, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is a power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. And that's what was being portrayed in this encounter with this Syrophoenician woman, right? And she displayed her faith in saying, just let me, just let me eat from the crumbs, right? Good. All right. Next question was enemies for 500. We didn't get to the 500 point question. What is the source of evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness? What is the heart? <laughs> what is the heart? He even asked with a question. Good job. <laughs> the heart of man or from within. Yeah, that's back in Mark 7. I think you taught that one too. Mark seven twenty-one says, for from within, out of the heart of man proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, and so on and so forth. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And we're so quick to want to blame the world or uh, oftentimes people blame Satan. Oh, the devil made me do it, right? Uh, but no, it's from within. We have wicked hearts in and of ourselves. We don't need anybody to teach us how to sin, to teach us how to be wicked. Yeah, Steve. So it's not about thinking evil thoughts. It doesn't have to be like totally wicked evil, just evil thoughts. Yeah. And then I, I tell myself, why am I doing this? You see, it doesn't really exist in your life, and it doesn't exist in your life unless you invite it in your life. So you have to throw it away. And that's what I tell myself. You know, I don't need this. Throw it away. You have to mortify the flesh constantly, right? Killing the old self and putting on the new self. There's that constant Roman 7 struggle that we still have the, the sinful nature with us. Even though we're new creatures in Christ, we still have a, a sinful nature and we have to constantly suppress that, right? Any other thoughts? All right, Sam, you just nailed that 500-point question like it was nothing. Good job. All right, and then our final Jeopardy question we didn't get to last week either. It was, how should we understand Jesus' intention to, quote, pass by his disciples when he was walking on the sea? Do-do-do-do-do-do-do. 
yeah, yeah, several people, right? Yeah. And so, how should we understand that then? What's Yeah, he was trying to show them and reveal himself to them, to just put his deity on display to pass by them. And so when we're just reading through the narrative and we don't really stop to slow down and think, it's from uh, Mark 6, 48. Um, says, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass by them. It sounds like he's just walking by, right? He's just... He's got some other destination in mind. But no, I think you're absolutely right that he's harking back to these, this Old Testament phrase that was common when God is passing by. He's seeking to reveal himself to a, a Moses or an Elijah to show himself to them. Um, let's see, I threw down some references here. You could see that in Job 9.11, uh, 1 Kings 19.11, Exodus 33, 18 through 22. And I wrote down here, uh, Exodus 34, 6 is uh, what first comes to my mind when I think of God passing by. It says, then the Lord passed by in front of him, in front of Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so... Yes, for Jesus to have passed by them. When he's walking on the water, something that normal people don't do, right? That was his intention, to reveal his deity to them. Good. Well, that's the last of our Jeopardy questions from last week. Any other thoughts or questions on any of the review or anything leading up to chapter 10 before we jump into chapter 10? Yes, Steve. You know, that last part you had there about thinking evil I think we could take it even one step below that and say that pride is what even spurs that on. Yeah, pride. We're, we're violent because we want to protect ourselves because we're worried about ourselves, right? Or we're worried about something that is ours. We don't want other people to get it. Or we, we lust because of the, the flesh, right? Um, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. These are the, the foundations of this sin struggle that we're constantly trying to battle. All right, good. Well, let's jump into Mark chapter 10. Let's see, I had a couple other review questions. We'll come back to those next week. Let's just getting into chapter 10 a little bit. So far up until this point in chapter 10, uh, we've seen Mark talking about how Jesus was talking about marriage and presenting marriage and um, answering this question on divorce, talking about how... Um, Moses permitted divorce 
a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of heart. And we see that theme um, continuing on, the hardness of heart theme. And then he talks about this rich young ruler for a little while and what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And this morning, we're going to be picking up in verse 32. Um, actually, I'll, I'll go back and start in 28. I'll just read 28 through 31 to give us a little bit of context. It says, Peter began to say to him, to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then verse 32, where we're starting today, he starts off by saying that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now, remember, throughout our study, we've seen that Mark is constantly pointing people to the cross, right? He's wanting to, to drive people to the cross. Um, that's kind of central in his whole layout and um, design of how he um, orchestrated his, his book, right? The Gospel of Mark. He's pointing people toward Jerusalem, driving the narrative of the life of Christ toward this pinnacle of his sacrifice, which takes place in Jerusalem. I'll throw up a map that we've used before just to try to encourage you guys to still move forward when we're in class. But you'll see again that down here towards the bottom is Jerusalem in the region of Judea. And then you have Samaria, the region a little bit north of that, and then Galilee, even farther north. And in John's gospel, you'll remember that he starts off with some events that take place in Jerusalem, talking about how Jesus went in and he cleansed the temple. Uh, he did that both at the beginning and the end of his ministry. And John begins his narrative, well, after, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, with God and all that. Um, but he begins the ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem. But Mark skips over all of that. And he begins his gospel with, Jesus going out to the Jordan and being baptized in the Jordan and then going out and being tempted in the wilderness. And then immediately following that, uh, he was going along the Sea of Galilee and gathering his disciples and then beginning ministry up there in Galilee. And so the bulk of what we read about in Mark's gospel takes place in Galilee, in Capernaum and uh, Nazareth, and then over into the more Gentile areas in the Decapolis, and then up into Tyre and Sidon a little bit. Um, but that's his focus, up in this northern area of Israel. That's where uh, Mark has been talking about the, the going, goings-on of Jesus and his ministry up until this point. Let's go back in to chapter 9 and read verse 30. We'll get a little bit of the lay of the land here and where Jesus is moving geographically throughout this narrative. So in Mark 9, verse 30, it says, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. So at this point, he's still in Galilee. Jumping down just to verse 33, it says they came to Capernaum, which is in Galilee. And when he was in the house, he began to question 
why are they discussing things this way? So even in chapter 9, we're still up in the, the northern area of Israel and Galilee. And then in chapter 10, it begins to pivot a little bit. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And so this is, again, more of a, a transition where he's going from Galilee down to Judea. And remember, Judea is where Jerusalem is at. This is uh, where he's going to lay down his life. This is where it's all going to end for uh, Jesus on this earth, right? Before he obviously takes up his life again and uh, has 40 days of uh, extended ministry. But then we see... Here in verse 32, this is the first mention of Jesus going to Jerusalem in Mark's gospel. It says that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. So, again, Mark is constantly driving, getting to the cross across, across his central to his whole uh, message. And now we're at this point where he's mentioning Jerusalem by name. And then also remember when he talks about going up to Jerusalem, he's talking about going up in elevation. So looking at the map, you might be thinking, no, he's going down to Jerusalem, right? But it's higher in elevation, so no matter where you're at in Israel, you go up to Jerusalem because it's elevated. So uh, they were traveling up in elevation toward Jerusalem. Hey, guys. All right, and then also in verse 32 of Mark 10, we can see that... Um, there are a couple of different groups that are being mentioned here. It says that they were going on the road, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So they are traveling, he is ahead of them, so we have to identify who this group is. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. So, the text mentions here that there are two groups. There's a, a larger group of uh, presumably disciples, and then the 12 are mentioned as a subgroup. And so we see, again, toward the end of that verse, that he takes them aside, takes the 12 aside. So we have a group of larger people who are following after Jesus, and then a group of 12, two different groups that are going to be dealt with in the coming verses. And we see with this first group, the larger group, that they were amazed and they were fearful. Any thoughts as to why they would be amazed and fearful? Yes, good. So, yeah, keeping in mind the context, right, they're headed to Jerusalem, and what the, the climate was around Jesus and people's hatred for Jesus, uh, they were amazed that he had such boldness to, to step forward, and he was going to go there anyway, even in the, the midst of that danger. We see the same thing with Paul in Acts 21, right, that he's, he's going to go to Jerusalem. 
it's the same city, ironically, and he has people who are after him, and he even has prophets come and say, you shouldn't go there. The, the Holy Spirit told me that there's pain and, and suffering waiting for you. And Paul said, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to follow after God. And he's following in the footsteps of Jesus, who does that same thing. He's going to Jerusalem knowing exactly what's awaiting him. And so that causes people to be, one, amazed at his bravery, but secondly, fearful for their own skins. And the fact that uh, being associated with Jesus, they were also in danger themselves. Um, over in John chapter 11, when Lazarus is raised, in verse 16, we see a, a pretty cool verse. You guys know about Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas, the disciple. He gets that bad rap of being doubting Thomas. But he has a, a pretty sweet verse here that is credited to him. It says, uh, therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So Jesus is going to, to raise Lazarus, and, and Thomas says, you know what, we're, we're going to go with him. Even knowing the, the trouble that awaits him and what that means, he was willing to stand up and say, well, we're going to go, knowing that the end is death. And then a little bit farther down in that passage in verse 55 of John 11, it gives us a little bit more insight into what was going on in the, uh, just the, the atmosphere around Jesus. So it says in verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was near. We know that, right? That's the, where Jesus lays down his life at Passover or Passover week. So the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem, again, going up, in elevation to Jerusalem, out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus, and they were saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it, so that they might seize him. And I skipped over verse 53, just a few verses before that. It says, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So that was their intention. They're not only planning to kill Jesus, they're actively seeking for Jesus. They're saying, if anybody knows where he's at, you need to speak up because we're going to go and we're going to seize him. We're going to kill him. That was the, the atmosphere. They're thinking ahead of time. They're, this is premeditated, right? Hey, we've got Passover coming up. Uh, surely he's going to be there for Passover. Let's be on the lookout. Anybody sees Jesus, you need to let us know. And so now here in Mark 10:32, right around the same time period, they're headed up in elevation, down uh, south, right, toward Jerusalem, where Mark has been building up this whole scene all along, because Jesus is going to the cross. That's the most important thing. And people are looking for Jesus. And now people are amazed at Jesus' bravery. They're fearful for themselves. Uh, that's where we're at back in Mark 10, verse 32. And it says that as they were walking in amazement and uh, fear, it says, again, he took the twelve aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. And so uh, it says that he took the twelve aside and again he was going to tell them. So he's already mentioned this several times, right? This is at least the third time that Jesus has spoken to them about his coming death, his imminent death. So let's go ahead and Go back a couple of chapters and see what Jesus has already said about his coming death. 
Who can grab uh, chapter 8, verse 31 for us? Mark 8, 31. All right, thanks, Amy. Yep. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. All right. And if you remember from that section, how was that news received? Remember, that's right after Peter was praised, right, for... Uh, saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Peter says, no, Lord. <laughs> uh, he took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. And then Jesus taught Peter what a real rebuke looks like and said, get behind me, Satan, right? So that wasn't received too well, but he told them pretty plainly, right? That the son of man must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. What about in chapter 9, verse 12? Who's got that? Okay. All right. So he's going to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And then he expounds upon that and gets even more specific down in verse 31 and 32. There he says, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. So the first time they said, no, Jesus, let it not be. And he rebuked them. This time they were afraid to say anything, right? They didn't want to be rebuked, but they didn't understand either. They didn't ask for clarification. It just says that they didn't understand this statement. Remember, they still have this mindset that he's going to usher in this kingdom that uh, they know and they're beginning to understand their eyes are being opened up to the fact that he is the Messiah. And their understanding of Messiah is he's going to reign in the kingdom. He is the, the son of David. He is the, the Alpha and Omega, right? Um, and in a, in a very real sense, they're right, but they just have their, their timing off and they're forgetting all these Old Testament prophecies about him having to suffer and die as well. All right, well, let's go back to chapter 10. Now that we have that as kind of a, a background, kind of a foundation, the first two times that Jesus told them about his coming death. So now back in chapter 10, he takes them aside again and begins telling them what was going to happen to them. And as we read these verses, verses 33 and 34, see if he can pick out and identify what is different this time, this third time that Jesus is preparing them for his imminent death? What does he add here that wasn't in those previous two uh, prophecies about his death? So he takes them aside, begins telling them what's going to happen. Verse 33, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. What do we see there that Jesus adds to his previous statements? Yes. 
What's that? And who's to say that what is going to that? Yeah. Yeah, the chief priests and the scribes, and they will hand him over, right? That's uh, language of betrayal. He's going to be betrayed and handed over into the hands of the Gentiles. So again, you're right. It's very specific. And yeah, how they're going to treat him. They're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him and scourge him. He mentioned before, yeah, that he must die. They're going to kill him. But now he's adding that this isn't just going to be a, a quick death, right? Um, not just a, a death and a resurrection. No, this is uh, going to be a, a whole thing. He's going to have to undergo this mocking, this uh, ridicule from these people. And so we see that uh, Jesus here adds that his death is a result of betrayal into the hands of the Gentiles. And yeah, he gets uh, pretty specific in his details. So he's going to spit on him and uh, mock him and scourge him as he's going to his death. And uh, this is all future tense, right? This is a, a prophecy. So eight times in here, uh, we see Jesus use future tense verbs, declaring with certainty that this is going to happen, that he is going to be mocked and killed. This isn't just a, a guess, but he is saying with certainty, this is what is going to happen. Um, right there in verse 33, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will scourge him. They will kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. So again, this is said with certainty. Uh, it's not a guess, not just a, a prediction like a, a weatherman would make. No, this is a, a prophecy that is for sure going to happen. Yeah, the chief priests and the scribes, right? And think for a second about who that is. These are respected figures in the community. It's not, you know, thugs and criminals that he's going to be handed over to, or by. He's, yeah, to. Um, he's delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. Um, so, yeah, this is, it's a, a mock trial, but... It will be a, a trial nonetheless. And we'll spend some time going through the, the six different trials that Jesus had. He had three Roman trials and three Jewish trials, all in a matter of hours, none of them uh, holding up to the requirements of the law. Just a complete kangaroo court. And he's predicting that ahead of time and letting them know this is what's going to happen. This is why we're going up to Jerusalem. Good. Any other thoughts or questions on those verses, 32 to 34? Jerry. When you said showing that he will be betrayed, delivered over, and betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes, and the most amazing statement I think about this whole thing is regarding the chief priests and scribes in John 19, 15, John records the chief priests. Your 
Can you believe that? Yeah, it really makes that verse ring in our mind where Jesus says, it's your own words that will condemn you in the day of judgment, right? Remember he said, we have no king but Caesar? Ouch. Bunch of foolish statements that are said just in a, a well, it, short it period of time. Shows how fundamentally profound our hate for God is as, as man. Fallen man, we are so, so hateful. Yep. Incomprehensible. You're going back to chapter 7, right? And the wickedness of the heart, that it's out of the heart that all these things flow. It's in there. Completely natural. All right, well, let's move on to verse 35 through 40. And lest you forget that we're switching scenes here, we're, we're not. Um, <laughs> this is right on the heels of Jesus saying that he is going to go to the cross. He is going to be mocked and spit upon and scourged and killed. And three days later, he will rise again. That, that did just happen. But let's go ahead and read the, the following verses. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus, like any uh, sensible man, said, What do you want me to do for you? Before he's going to just say, Okay, right? He's, he's not going to do that. He says, What do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. It's kind of crazy, right, that those are like literally back to back in the text. There's, again, we didn't jump to a different passage. Well, if we look at the, the parallel passage of Matthew's account, in Matthew 20, 21 through 20, 20 through 21, rather, it tells us that their mother, Salome, asked for them. They got their mom and said, hey, mom, will you go ask Jesus to give us this favor? And again, I think it's just kind of funny that they said, hey, will you, will you give us whatever we ask for without like presenting the question, right? I know my kids have done that several times. Just, hey, Dad, will, will you do something for me? Uh, why don't you ask and we'll see, right? Um, that's kind of how they presented it to Jesus. So I'll read that par parallel passage for us. Matthew 20, 20 says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with their son, with her sons, rather, bowing down and making a request of him. So she bowed down, so that's good. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left. And then when Jesus answered, he turned and he pivoted, and he doesn't address the mom. He addresses the kids. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of this cup? Right? So they 
took their mom with them to go and ask this question of Jesus. And I think um, we're, we're kind of harsh on James and John sometimes. I, I don't think this is necessarily a, a bad question to ask. I think we're given promises in Scripture about rewards that we have in heaven and uh, things that are promised to us in the, the life to come, right? And how what we do here has impact on what we're given later, that these are things that we should be working towards and striving towards, and uh, we should be setting out these things as, as a goal, that we want to have and store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. These are good things. But the timing really is kind of off here, right? Jesus talking about how he's going to go and he's going to suffer and die and rise again. And then James and John come up with this question. Uh, so maybe they do deserve a little bit of harshness for sure. Um, notice in Jesus' answer that he ties his kingdom exaltation to his coming or to his suffering that he was just talking about. These two are related. They're interconnected. That was his purpose. That was why he came. He came to suffer. He came to die. Um, things have to be done in order, and Jesus realizes that. Remember, all the way back, like we already mentioned back in chapter 1, at Jesus' temptation, when he was out in the wilderness and he was being tempted, Satan sat this before Jesus and said, you know what, you can just skip the cross. You don't even have to worry about suffering. I'll, I'll just give you all these kingdoms right now. All of it's yours. You can have a, a shortcut. You don't need to go to the cross. And Jesus rebuked him, right? And then again, just what we looked at a moment ago in chapter 8, when Peter said, no, Lord, uh, God forbid, you don't need to suffer and go to the cross. And Jesus aptly said, no, get behind me, Satan. That's what he came here for. That was his purpose. That was his goal. And he wasn't going to be uh, led astray from that. He wasn't going to take any kind of uh, circuitous route, a, a shortcut uh, to this, this kingdom, this glory. And that's where James and John, their minds are at. They're looking at, okay, well, what, what's ahead? What about this kingdom that you're going to establish? What about this, this ruling that is going to be taking, on, taking place here? How can we uh, kind of weasel our way in there and, and be a part of that? Can we sit on your, your right hand and your left, just overlooking the cross altogether? And that's not at all what Jesus was about. He's tying together his kingdom with his suffering. And then when he mentions um, in verse 38, he said to them, you don't know what you're asking. And they didn't, right? They're, again, looking past the cross, looking to the, the reigning, to the glory. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And here when he's talking about this cup, this cup refers to uh, divine judgment or wrath that is being poured out on sin. Um, it's a, a common Old Testament phrase. I just picked a, kind of a popular one here in Jeremiah to look at. So let's go ahead and turn to Jeremiah and we'll read this together, keeping in mind that Jesus is referring to this cup that he is about to drink from, asking James and John if they're able to drink from this same cup. So Jeremiah chapter 25, and I'll start reading in verse 15. And this, this is kind of a cool chapter. So earlier in the chapter, uh, God is telling Jeremiah that there are going to be 70 years that uh, Judah has to spend in Babylon. They're going to have to to be there. You're going to have to get ready. Later on, Jeremiah 29, he says, go ahead and build houses there, because you're going to be there for a while. 
And so he's preparing them for that and letting them know the reason why they're going to be in uh, exile for 70 years. This is a result of the wrath of God. And this wrath isn't just reserved for, for Judah alone, not just for Israel alone. Um, and so he's going to, as God is going to, as he often did, use one of his prophets as a means for a, like a, oh, what is it? Just an, an example for the nations, something that he does to display, like how he had, uh, was it Ezekiel lay on his side for three years, right? Uh, do all kinds of weird things and eating food in uh, very unsanitary ways. Uh, so, oh, like a, a word picture. There's another word I'm looking for, but um, this is an example to the nations. So, Jeremiah 25, starting in verse 15, it says, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, says, says to me, Take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to drink to whom I send you to drink it. So he has a, a physical cup, and he's going to send it to the nations that are going to drink from this cup. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. Uh, you can just kind of scroll your eyes down. It says to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt to all the foreign peoples of the land of Uz, the Philistines, to Gaza, to Edom, to Moab, the kings of Tyre and Sidon, uh, Eden and Tima and Buzz, all these places I haven't even heard of, and the kings of Arabia, kings of Zimri and Elam, and uh, the kings of the north and near and far, all these different kingdoms are going to drink from this cup that symbolizes God's wrath being poured out on them. And then in verse 27, it says that you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink. Be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more, because the sword which I will send among you. And it will be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you will say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall surely drink. So this is something that God is sending before them. This is an example of his wrath that he is pouring out upon them. And now, jumping forward to Mark 10, where we're at this morning, uh, Jesus is turning to James and John and saying, are you able to drink of this cup that I am to drink of? Uh, so, um, this cup, which is referring to divine judgment and wrath being poured out upon sin, Jesus is now applying that same uh, imagery to himself. Why on earth would Jesus apply this concept of sin and wrath being poured out upon himself? Why would he take that imagery and apply it to himself? Come on. No thoughts? That is a, a foreign concept, right? That God would bear the wrath of God. Um, but it is so central to the gospel, right? And oftentimes we want to kind of shy away from that. And back in Isaiah 53, that it pleased the Father to crush the Son. Like, what? That, that seems so foreign, so random. 
but that was the purpose for which he came, right? So that he could take and bear our sins upon himself. And it was just shortly after this that he would do just that, that he would bear our sin. Check out this verse, 1 Peter. Oh, maybe you can check out that. You guys need to sit closer, I'm telling you. So 1 Peter uh, 2, 21 through 24 says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And then verse 24 says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. This is why Jesus is talking about this cup of wrath that's being, that he's, he's about to drink from, right? This cup of wrath that's being poured out upon him that he's about to drink, and he's turning to James and John and saying, you guys, again, you're, you're getting ahead of yourselves. You're looking toward the kingdom. I, I'm looking toward the cross, right? That was what he just got done presenting, toward, presenting to them, and they're tripping over themselves, looking for this, this place of honor and glory sitting next to Jesus in the kingdom, um, not even focusing on what it is that they should be focusing on. And Jesus does go on. He does assure them that they will, in fact, participate in his suffering. But he promises them nothing. He says, um, let me see, in verse 40, um, or 39, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, but you shall be baptized, and you shall be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized, being identified with this suffering. Remember, when we read baptism, we should think identification. Verse 40, but to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And so remember that all throughout this book, Mark has been highlighting the authority of Jesus, right? That's one of our main words that we're, we're remembering, that this is a, a key phrase, a key word in Mark. He wants to show Jesus has authority over sin. He can forgive sin. He has authority over demons, over disease, all this stuff. And yet here, uh, even though Mark has been highlighting the authority of Jesus, now he says that he doesn't have authority to grant this request. What should we make of this statement? How should we understand this uh, change in perspective? All right. Yeah, again, going all the way back to some of our first studies, right, talking about the, the Trinity, that Jesus is God and Jesus is and yet the three persons of the one being of God, they have different roles within their, their function. They function differently. The, we have the ontological trinity, which is a big word, but just saying that there is only one God in, in essence. Um, but they, the three persons of the one God have different roles. They function differently, right? The economic trinity, they have different roles that uh, they, they serve different things that they do. And so Jesus' reply here is highlighting his reverent submission to his father, um, recognizing that's not his role. That's not what he has been sent to do. All right, and then I wanted to share with you guys this quote from Gregory of Nazianzus, right? Um, And he's highlighting again the vicarious death of Jesus, this fact that He is drinking this cup that we deserve. He is taking this wrath upon himself that should be poured out upon us. 
and he says that he, Jesus, is our sanctification, as himself in purity, that the pure may be encompassed by his purity. He is our redemption, because he sets us free who were held captive under sin, giving himself as a ransom for us, the sacrifice to make expiation for the world. And he is our resurrection, because he raises up and brings to life again those who were slain by sin. Jesus is all those things for us, our sanctification, our redemption, our resurrection. Um, that's a beautiful summary statement of what it is that Jesus is doing. And his redemption, that's a word that he uses later on down in verse 45, our key word for, our key verse for the book of Mark, right? That uh, he gave his life as a ransom for many. That's talking about the redemption, that he has bought us back out of the slave market of sin. All right. Well, carrying on in verses 41 through 45, I'll go ahead and read that for us. It's talking about the response to this question that James and John had their mommy ask Jesus, right? Verse 41 says, Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think it seems far more likely that the disciples became indignant for selfish reasons than for a sense of avenging Jesus' honor, right? Uh, There's certainly a a way that you could read this that would say uh, the the ten are coming up, they're saying, hey, James, John, like your timing is way off, right? And Jesus was just talking about his death. Uh, He's talking about how he's going to the cross. That was incredibly distasteful. Jesus is declaring these things, and then you just are are seeking for position in his kingdom. However, I don't think that was what they were saying. I think they were saying, James and John, really, you think the the right and the left are you? Uh, Who is is James, right? He's the brother of the beloved. Why should he get the the left seat of Jesus? I think that they, again, are are selfish. They're wanting these positions for themselves. Um, Their indignation, I don't think, comes from... uh, a righteous place. No, it's from a very selfish place, right? Uh, listen to this quote from John Grassmick. He says that Jesus contrasted greatness in this world's king in this world's kingdoms with that in God's kingdom. The contrast is not between two ways of ruling, but between ruling, either good ruling or bad ruling, and serving. And so he does use a, a couple of examples here. He talks about uh, the rulers of the Gentiles and how they lord it over them, and then also their great men and how they exercise authority over them. But both of these are just examples of ruling. And he's Jesus is saying to rule in my kingdom isn't to rule. It's not to have authority that you're exercising over somebody else, but it is to serve. It's to love, to make yourself lower and less, right? Uh, God's kingdom operates in a, a wildly different way from the worldly kingdoms. A disciple of Jesus is to voluntarily serve others, to sacrifice his own interests and desires, uh, to consider others as more important than himself, right? Philippians 2, 3. 
uh, again, looking to Jesus as the example. Um, let's see. Oh, yes, I've not been clicking along here. Okay, so a disciple in Jesus' kingdom is to be marked by service rather than uh, by one who has authority or who leads others. And this concept is far from new. Jesus has been preaching this all along, right? Repeatedly, he has taught this principle of humble service. Real quickly, back in 935, he said the same thing. Sitting down, he called the 12 to him and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then just in this same chapter, not even that long ago, in 1015, it says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And then just back in verse 31, uh, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So Jesus has always been preaching this same thing, even recently, and yet James and John are still wanting to be first, and it seems like the other ten are uh, mad at them because they want to be first as well. And Jesus has to remind them, just like we have to often be reminded, that uh, it's not about power or position or, or privilege in this world, but we need to serve and, and love others just like Jesus did. And then he wraps up with our, our key verse, right? Presenting himself as the example. Even the Son of Man, even God himself, uh, harking back to Daniel 7, right? The Son of Man, this is a, a phrase of deity, of the, the reigning aspect of his, his ministry. Even the Son of Man himself did not come to be served, even though he deserves to be served, right? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, driving them back to the cross. You guys keep looking forward to, to glory, to the, the kingdom. It's not about that. Jesus is focused on the cross. Any thoughts or questions on our passage today, 32 through 45. A lot of it's kind of review because Jesus has been saying these things over and over again, right? The Son of Man has to suffer and die. You guys have to become lower. You guys have to realize that whoever wants to be first really has to be last, has to serve, and look to Jesus for that example. And he's wrapping it up right here again. Yeah, Jerry. Acts 12, he's the first disciple to be martyred, right? And we think, well, John, he got off the hook, right? Because church history says he didn't, he didn't suffer a martyr's death. But he had to live all those years undergoing that persecution. Uh, and that's, it's a, a different kind of suffering, but he had to endure it longer. It wasn't just a, a moment suffering for John. It was a life of suffering and persecution for him. Yeah, yeah, repeatedly they tried to kill him. John proved himself to be uh, not only just a servant to, to the other disciples, but to everyone who was in, or, uh, in the church during those days. Mm. He would write letters of encouragement. He would yeah. kind of give direction. Um, I, he was there at the cross. Yeah. Like, he, he didn't run away like everyone else. He didn't hide. He was there, present at the time. And so Jesus even entrusted the care of his 
Jeff's history tells us he stayed with stayed and took care of her even up until towards his, his death there whenever she passed away. Yeah. Which is another example of Jesus' ability to know the future, right? That he had this understanding that John was going to be around. These other guys who weren't, but yeah, James and John, they were the, the bookend of the disciples. First to go and the last to go. And uh, they did indeed drink that cup and they were baptized at that baptism, but uh, who knows where they're going to be in glory. They were on yeah. the right and left end of the suffering. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, Jerry. Well, it's also Yeah, it was just a couple chapters ago he was saying, you guys are still blind. You're still not getting it. Are you still lacking understanding? You still have eyes and not not seeing. You have ears and you don't hear. And yeah, they they were quite a testament to the fact that uh, God changes hearts, right? Takes our hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh and regenerates us, gives us new life. And uh, unless we're born again, we will in no way enter the kingdom of God. All right, let's pray. God, thank you again for your word, for your truth. Help us to live lives that are worthy of the calling that we've received. Help us to uh, look to the cross before we look to uh, our future glory. God, thank you for the fact that you, even though you deserve all the honor and glory, you came to, to seek and to save the lost. You came not to be served, but to serve and give your life as a ransom for many, as a ransom for us. We're so undeserving, so thankful and grateful. Amen.